Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Today we've come to the last message in our series called Understanding the Book of Revelation. As we've gone along, we've said that Revelation teaches that there's a blessing in reading and responding to its message. But many people don't feel the blessing and they don't read the book because they see it as a book filled with codes or confusion. And we miss Revelation's own focus on Jesus and its call to faithfulness as a result. Today, we're looking at God's judgment in the seven bowls of his wrath in Revelation 16. Judgment isn't a popular topic today, but I think we're inconsistent in how we talk about it. Consider the athletic center, Planet Fitness. Their slogan is brilliant. The world judges, we don't. At Planet Fitness, be free. That sounds great, doesn't it? Eric Stagno thought so when he arrived at the gym in Playstone, New Hampshire. He walked in, stripped off all his clothing, walked back and forth a couple of times, and then proceeded to begin a yoga routine on the mats, completely naked. Needless to say, people were uncomfortable. Before long, police were called in, and Stagno was arrested for indecent exposure. When he was questioned by the police, they said that he referenced the club's motto and said that he thought it was a judgment-free zone. Now, I have no idea what his intentions were, but I think he was onto something. Today, people like to think of themselves as non-judgmental, but what they usually mean is that they're accepting about certain behaviors that they're into, but still just as judgmental about others. And we bring our inconsistent language about judgment into conversations about God. Most people think that God should be loving, not judgmental. He should be accepting of sinners not angry with them. At the same time, if there's a murder or a rape or some injustice done, many of the same people will ask, why doesn't God do something about this? We demand justice, but only for other people. We want God to deal with sin, but we want to decide which sins he deals with. Becky Pipper had it right when she said, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the inside of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. Today's passage considers the anger or wrath of God. It looks at his judgment in this life and asks whether it's fair and how we should live in light of it. If you have your Bible handy, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Revelation 16, verses 1 to 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the, shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. 
It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues and anguished and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on that great day of, uh, of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of God. Now, I want to start by talking you through the first three bowls of God's wrath and show you that God's judgments are fair because the punishment fits the crime. His judgments aren't arbitrary and they don't depend on his moods. God's judgments are fair because the punishment fits the crime. Now, the first bowl is poured out on the earth in verse 2, and it says, Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. A similar plague came to Egypt, and the people broke out in boils all over. The picture is of painful red sores all over the skin. I'm thinking pus and pain. When Job went through something like this, he took, took a broken pot and scraped his skin with it. It feels like it'll help, but it'll only make things worse. There's no relief. But notice who gets these boils. It's the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We've seen already that the world is divided into two groups in Revelation. Those who are sealed with God's mark and those who have the mark of the beast. It's not an actual mark, but a symbol of your loyalty and allegiance. Who sets the direction of your life? Who calls the shots? Is it God or the world? Those with the mark of the beast are marked by painful marks. Those who refuse, refuse the protection of God's seal are covered with terrible sores. Since the bowl is symbolic, the sores probably are too, but they represent real pain. And the message is, the punishment fits the crime. 
The same is the case with the second and the third bowls. In verse 3, the sea becomes like blood and everything in it dies. In verse 4, the rivers and the springs are turned to blood as well. It reminds us of Moses turning the water of the Nile into blood. Rome's economy relied on the water. It wasn't just the seafood it provided. It was one of the only ways of transporting goods for trade. There was no ancient equivalent of an 18-wheeler. So a threat to the waterways jeopardized the entire economy. And verse 6 gives a justification. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. When people turn from God, they worship their beauty, their health, and their money. And so God strikes them in each of these areas to warn them that they're on the wrong path but also to punish them for the wrongs they've committed. There's blood to drink for those who have shed blood. And this isn't talking of the final judgment yet. That doesn't arrive until the seventh bowl. In the last days, God is carrying out his judgments through the catastrophes and circumstances of life. And his judgments are fair because he ensures that the punishment fits the crime. Now, that doesn't mean that if things aren't going well in your life, that God is judging you. There are many reasons for suffering in this world. But it does mean that if you're living with your back turned to God, you have every right to expect his judgment. If you're headed toward an eternity separated from him, the most gracious thing that he could do would be to give you a taste of that pain now to convince you to turn from your ways. God's judgments are fair because the punishment fits the crime. They're also fair because people express no remorse. What Revelation shows is that no matter how many warning shots God fires over the bow, most people refuse to change. Humanity is hardened in its sin. God's judgments are fair because people express no remorse. The fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and it says that they were scorched by the fierce heat. It doesn't use the word global warming, but there's definitely something going on with the world's thermostat. It's not as hot as the lake of fire, but it's pretty uncomfortable. And it's intended to get people's attention, to warn them that something's wrong, to help them get off the pathway to hell. What does God get for his gracious warning? Verse 9 gives a response. It says, They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, They did not repent and give him glory. With the fifth bowl, verse 10 says that the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. It's a picture of hopelessness. People who are in spiritual darkness are made to feel the weight of that darkness. Those who have rejected God's light are plunged into the darkness of despair. And this is the most gracious thing that God could do. The darkness screams, you're on the wrong path. Again, it's a warning of the eternal darkness that awaits them if they won't turn to him. But verses 10 and 11 give their response. It says, People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Now, painful circumstances can humble people. When you've had a strict warning, it can make you think twice about your life or at least be more cautious. That's not the case with those who face God's judgment. With the sixth bowl, 
God shows his power by drying up the Euphrates River. It was the largest river in that part of the world, and with its water dried up, the kings and kingdoms that it divided can now gather. When they do, they come together to wage war on God and his people. It's a famous end-time battle of Armageddon. The way it's described, though, reminds us of God drying up the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army attacked the Israelites. That battle ended without a single shot, and it looks like this one will end just as quickly. The details are spelled out in another vision in chapter 19, but for now, the image is just of how stubbornly rebellious humanity is. No matter what God does, they only become more hardened in their resistance. And we might have expected that because God's judgment to the, judgments have been compared to the plagues on Egypt throughout Revelation. Here we see that those on the receiving end are acting just like Pharaoh did, hard-hardened and determined not to turn from their ways. This is important in explaining God's judgments because even in our own legal system, the defendant's remorse has a big influence on the judge's sentencing. When a person is arrested, if they're quick to admit they're wrong and communicate sorrow at what they've done, there's hope that they'll change. But unrepentant perpetrators, they're treated more severely by juries and judges because they're almost certain to commit the same crime again and again. What you see in Revelation is God giving warning after warning after warning, and most remain hardened until the end. Seen in that light, God's judgments are not only fair, they're gracious. People keep demanding that God give them paradise on earth, and God keeps inviting them to the paradise that's above, and warning them that this world is headed for destruction. So God's judgments are fair because the punishment fits the crime. Where God punishes people for their sins in this lifetime, it's never more than an eye for an eye. His justice is righteous and true. But his judgments are also fair because people express no remorse. No matter how many warnings he gives, people, people blame him for their circumstances and curse him for their pain. The final message of the seven bowls is that God's judgments are fair because they answer the victim's cries. God isn't just carrying out abstract punishments that only matter to him. They're an answer to people's pleas for justice. There are sighs of relief when they finally come. God's judgments are fair because they answer the victim's cries. In verse 17, an angel pours the last bowl out into the air. With that, there are flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake unlike anything that's ever been felt before. In verse 20, the islands and mountains almost seem to run away in fear of the judgment that's being unleashed. Verse 21 ends the picture of God's judgment with the following. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, so far, the heaviest hailstones in recorded history were about two to three pounds with a diameter of eight or nine inches. At that size, it's, they'd be lethal and cause untold damage. But the picture of these hailstones is 40 to 50 times that. It's a horrific picture of unimaginable fury. But again, it's unleashed on people who are cursing God with their last breaths. 
stubbornly resisting him until the end. They're past warnings. They're beyond hope. They refuse to be saved. When this final bowl is introduced, a loud voice from the throne declares, it is done. And it reminds us of Jesus's words from the cross declaring, it is finished. Now on the cross, Jesus announced the accomplishment of salvation. On the throne, he now announces the accomplishment of God's judgments. But how is that an accomplishment? Although the heart of the Bible's message is God's plan to rescue sinners who turn to him, it also contains cries for justice from beginning to end. For example, when Cain attacks his brother Abel and the first murder occurs, God famously says to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You can feel the weight of injustice yourself when someone wrongs you or someone you love. But what God feels isn't just on a personal level. He bears the very weight of global justice. Every theft, every abuse, every act of violence weighs on him like a judge with a backlog of unresolved cases. Throughout scripture, there are cries from God's people for him to act. They know that God's patient. They know that he's merciful, but they call for justice. In Psalm 119, verse 84, the psalmist prays, How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Imagine hearing those prayers from across the world, day after day, year after year. Imagine the number of people just in the nation of Ukraine who have prayed a prayer like that in the last week. In Revelation 6.10, we heard the cry of the martyrs, those who had lost, lost their lives for their faith. They cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The haunting chorus of that prayer has echoed throughout the book of Revelation. And the message of the bowls is that one day that prayer will be finally and decisively answered. God's work in pursuing justice for every victim will be fully accomplished. And that's what's so inconsistent about the world's thinking on God's judgment. There's perhaps never been a generation so concerned in seeing justice, but only if we can be the judge. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. I wonder if you've done that. We live in a world that curses God and blames him for their circumstances. People condemn God for his judgment, but have no qualms in judging God. They reject his laws and judge him by their own. Have you let that thinking affect yours? Do you trust that God's judgments are fair? Do you see the circumstances of this life and what God's doing in our world and trust that in the end, the punishment will have fit the crime. Can you look at the calamities of this world and trust that God is carrying out his righteous purposes? 
And do you believe that God is pursuing justice for the victims of the world? Do you know that he'll answer their prayers for justice? And do you know that he'll answer your prayers for justice? Or do you treat God as an inadequate judge by taking judgment into your own hands? Finally, you and I need to ask ourselves whether we're not standing under the verdict of God's judgment. Is it possible that you've been blaming God for painful circumstances he's been using to try and warn you? Could you be one of the people that this passage describes as refusing to repent and give him glory? One day, Jesus will say of his judgments, it is done. The day for warnings will be passed. The time for repentance will be over. But now we live in the grace of the cross. It was there that he said of his work of salvation, it is finished. Jesus has done everything to provide for your forgiveness. So come to him, turn to him, and give up your role as his judge and put your trust in him as your judge. He's the one who can make all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for acting as if you're the defendant and we're the judge. Forgive us for putting you on trial. Forgive us for thinking that we could do a better job of running this world. Forgive us for imagining that we see justice more clearly than you do. Humble us, Father. You're God and we're not. Help us to submit to your wisdom, to trust in your knowledge, to acknowledge your ways. And Father, if there is anyone who is standing under your judgment, stubbornly resisting you, cursing you even as you seek to graciously warn them, bring them to yourself, Father. And speak into their lives and give them the courage to trust in the Savior who accomplished salvation on that cross and provided for their forgiveness as a free gift. Draw them to yourself, for we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to understand God's judgment and the seven bowls of his wrath. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.